Hello and welcome to the Lancet's podcast this week. I'm Sally Hargreaves and I'm joined today by Dr Neil Sabir, author of a research article in this week's issue of The Lancet, dated the 31st of May to the 6th of June. Dr Sabir is an academic and consultant at the Great Ormond Street Hospital for Children in London and is part of a team of researchers exploring sudden unexpected deaths in infants. Welcome. To begin with, can you describe for our listeners what is meant by sudden infant death, or cot death as it is more commonly known, and explain how we currently investigate cases in the UK? I think it's worth just clarifying some of the terminologies both used in this area in general and in particular in this paper. The term SUDI, or sudden unexpected death in infancy, really represents the clinical presentation of exactly what it says, which is a sudden and unexpected death of an infant from 7 to 365 days of life. The rate of such deaths is variable geographically, but overall is around about one in a thousand infants. Now in the United Kingdom, all of these deaths are referred to and investigated by Her Majesty's Coroner's System. And as part of this investigation, a post-mortem is carried out in an attempt to determine the cause of the death. The KESDI study, around 10 years ago now, indicated that many of these deaths were not being investigated by specialist paediatric pathologists. And recently, a joint working party report of the Royal College of Pathologists and Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health issued a report suggesting that the deaths should all be investigated in specialist centres. So at Great Ormond Street Hospital, we carry out around 300 paediatric postmortems a year, and the largest group of these is on behalf of the coroner. Overall, following postmortem examination, about a third of these infant deaths will have a cause identified, but the majority will still remain unexplained. So the terminology we've used for this group is unexplained SUDI, which for the purposes of the rest of the discussion is essentially synonymous with SIDS, or Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. Now, strictly speaking, there are some other specific criteria which are required and used by both different pathologists and different coroners for the use of SIDS versus SUDI, for example, in relation to whether the child was sleeping in its own cot or somewhere else. But essentially, we'll use the term synonymously today, and in the study, we use the term unexplained SUDI for this group. Sudden infant death we know is one of the most common presentations of post-neonatal infant death in the UK, yet there still remain numerous theories about its cause and, and the subject remains hugely controversial. Can you summarise the current theories surrounding the cause of sudden infant death and, and what is specifically known about the role of underlying infection? There's been lots of research and it's been known for many decades that in a minority of cases of apparently sudden unexpected infant deaths, Features of infection can be identified at post-mortem, which are deemed sufficient to explain the death. And examples of such infections would be meningitis or pneumonia. However, there is controversy regarding how these infections are diagnosed at post-mortem, with the current gold standard being the identification of histological features of infection, such as pneumonia, with or without confirmation of a specific organism. The role of infections in the absence of these histological responses using current techniques remains controversial. Can you summarise for us, therefore, the objectives of your study that appears in this week's issue? One of the current areas of difficulty in post-mortem examination in this setting is that although the taking of cultures at the time of autopsy is now standard practice, their interpretation in this specific post-mortem setting remains difficult. 
Problems with previous studies in this area have been that they have included relatively small numbers of cases or have recruited patients from multiple different centres where the protocols may vary or they've been carried out by non-specialist pathologists where sampling may not have been carried out. Additionally, it has been difficult to separate the results of microbiological findings from their interpretation of the supposed clinical significance, which has been really based on empirical principles rather than hard data. Therefore, the objective of this study was primarily to determine whether potentially pathogenic organisms are found more commonly in cases of otherwise unexpected sudden infant death than from controls. So you and your colleagues carried out a systematic retrospective case review of all autopsies done at your centre between 1996 and 2005 for the indication of sudden unexpected death. Can you elaborate a little in terms of the methodological approach you used for this study and how how you went about analysing samples? Of course. As far as possible, we wanted to remove all aspects of interpretation of the significance of microbiology results from the cause of death classification in order to remove any bias. Therefore, what we did was to review a consecutive series of infant autopsies done on behalf of the coroner for the indication of sudden unexpected death in infancy, which was 546 in total. And we divided these cases into three cause of death groups. First were those that were explained by an underlying infectious cause. And for the purposes of this study, these were those cases that had definite histological evidence of infection, such as pneumonia, meningitis, etc. The second group were those cases in which the death could be explained by a definite non-infective cause found at post-mortem. For example, those with previously undiagnosed congenital heart disease or an accident. And finally, the remaining group we classified as unexplained SUDI, and these were those in whom the histology and all other investigations were normal, but we did not include any microbiological results in this classification of death. So that was really the first step. We then also divided any organisms identified in any of the samples into three groups following discussion with the paediatric microbiologists. And these were divided into non-pathogenic organisms, which do not normally cause disease in non-immunocompromised hosts, group 1 pathogens, which are known to cause disease but usually are associated with a clear focus of infection, and group 2 pathogens, which are organisms which are known to cause disease without necessarily having an obvious anatomically detectable focus. And essentially, we then compared the frequencies of these organisms across the cause of death groups. So what were your key findings and and were your results expected to a certain extent? There are two main findings of this study, really. The first is that there was a significantly increased frequency of group 2 pathogen detection in the otherwise unexplained SUDI group compared to non-infectious deaths. We actually found that there was a 20 to 30% excess of detection of group 2 pathogens in this group. And the prevalence, in fact, was very similar to the prevalence in the group where we found histological features of infection. Now, this finding indicates that a significant proportion of otherwise unexplained SUDI is likely to be infection-related, although we don't know the mechanisms at this point. The second important finding, and this 
perhaps was more unexpected is that in about a quarter of infant postmortems in whom the death appeared to be clearly non-infective, group two pathogens could also be isolated from at least one site. And this finding indicates that simply the detection of a potentially pathogenic organism on a postmortem culture result does not necessarily mean that either that organism or indeed infection was actually responsible for the death. So how do these findings add to our understanding and the ongoing debate around the cause of sudden unexpected death in infants? This data raises potentially important issues regarding an explanation for a subgroup of infant deaths. And it's becoming increasingly clear that SIDS-SUDI is not an entity in itself, but simply represents a way of classifying deaths in whom we currently cannot identify a cause. Now, these data suggest that some of these deaths are probably infection-related, and there are also likely to be interactions between these possible infectious factors and other recognized epidemiological risk factors. So I think what we're really doing is adding another piece to the puzzle overall of what may cause infant death. And even if we find a mechanism to explain the current findings, a significant proportion of infant deaths will still remain unexplained. In an accompanying commentary to your paper, authored by James Morris and Linda Harrison from the Royal Infirmary in Lancaster, UK, they say that the new science of proteomics, with techniques to identify bacterial protein products in human body fluids, are the obvious next steps in investigating sudden infant death. What, in your opinion, are next steps in terms of research in this area, and what questions still need answering? Although these findings are potentially important and certainly indicate an association between the identification of potentially pathogenic organisms more frequently from SIDS SUDI cases than from controls, by definition, in the current study, in these cases, we didn't find histological evidence of infection. And therefore, the key questions for us now are, firstly, what is the mechanism by which these bacteria may act to cause sudden death. It's certainly possible that the mechanism may not be due to direct classical tissue destruction, but rather by other means, such as by a combination of the organism and an abnormal host response to the infection, or even a response to factors secreted by the organism, such as toxins. I should make it clear that these at present are purely speculative hypotheses and that we didn't examine any of the possible mechanisms in the current study. Second, from a purely practical perspective and as a pediatric pathologist, we need to develop better ways to determine whether in any individual case that we are examining, the identification of one of these potentially pathogenic organisms is simply an incidental finding or relates directly to the cause of death. So I think the next step in research in this area is for us to investigate further the possible mechanisms and there are a range of techniques which we may be able to use to approach this. And finally, does your research have any implications for parents? Although the current results will hopefully lead to a much better understanding of what causes a proportion of these infant deaths, I think it's important to emphasise that at present we've described a possibly important association, but have not proven causality or mechanism. And only once we have this better understanding can we make specific suggestions of how to reduce the risk for this specific area. However, in the meantime, whatever the mechanism may be, previous 
epidemiological studies have clearly identified certain risk factors for sudden unexpected infant death. And many of these may in fact act synergistically with bacterial colonization and therefore may be relevant in the context of the current study as well. And therefore, the current advice for parents would stand to do not smoke, ideally either during the pregnancy or after the baby is born, and babies should be put to sleep in the safest sleeping environment, which we now know is in the baby's own cot in the same room as the parents, and particularly with the infant sleeping on its back rather than its front. Neil Sabir, thank you very much for talking to The Lancet. Thank you very much. Other things to look out for in this week's issue include a randomised controlled trial that has shown that the corticosteroid drug prednisolone is as effective as the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug naproxen for the treatment of gout. This is important because non-steroidal anti-inflammatories are currently the first-line treatment for gout, yet they present numerous gastrointestinal, renal and cardiovascular risks to patients. Systemic corticosteroids may therefore provide a beneficial alternative. Another randomised trial, the POISE study, concludes that there are substantial risks as well as benefits in giving perioperative beta blockers to patients undergoing non-cardiac surgery. The trial has shown that patients given beta blockers after non-cardiac surgery have a higher risk of death or stroke than those given placebo. However, the patients given beta blockers were less likely to suffer non-fatal heart attack. An early online paper also published this week highlights that among patients with advanced pancreatic cancer who were given axitinib, in addition to the standard treatment of gemcitabine, show a trend towards increased survival compared with those given gemcitabine alone. The authors conclude that their findings now require further investigation in a phase 3 trial for which patients are currently being enrolled. This week's lead editorial is about the World Health Organization's Director General Margaret Chan and her drive to put primary health care centre stage at the WHO. Other editorials include a call for paper for the forthcoming Lancet special issue on social determinants for health and one highlighting current concerns around the use of cognition-enhancing drugs for non-medical reasons. Also, look out for a world report on the health challenges facing the Chinese authorities after the Sichuan earthquake, a seminar on tick-borne encephalitis, and a review on the use of doping agents in sport. That concludes this week's podcast. Thank you for listening. We'll be back with more next week.